Hey, Dan. Hey, Rob. How are you? <laughs> she said last time I didn't do it well, so I, no. I try to jump right in. No. Now I'll have to add silence. I will punish you when I post edit this track. Uh, what are we doing today? We, well, first, it's now uh, it's going to become a thing. And I think, unfortunately, we're going to start a trend here. We're going to make me do one of these every single time. Mm-hmm. You ready? Is this another one? Of, uh, did you have better audio? Is this the pre-roll candidate? Are you ready? Yes. Podcast listeners, let's get ready to rumble. In this corner, Rob, the Metaphor Man page, and Dan Morrison. Let's get to it. Oh, man, seeing your face react to that was like the best part of my day. It's it's better. It's better. We have to work on your audio setup. Like I, I'm going to have to violate COVID and come down because it looks like, it sounds like you're on an AM radio over a can <laughs> with strings. Well, this again, where it's test and learn, like the, I'm not going for. I know, but I think I gave you that feedback last time. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> We're going there. See, we haven't even introduced Danny yeah. yet. And Let's we're introduce like pulling her into so, the fray. Fail, fail. We'll work on it. Let's introduce Danny. Danny, how are you? I'm good. How are you both? We are. We're well. I've been better. Rob, Rob's having some fun. I am at my expense as usual, which is, I guess, is part of our shtick. But um, I like it. I like it. Well, good. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, we have uh, Danielle Nirenberg, or Danny. Um, Danny is the founder of an amazing organization called Food Tank. She is the 2020 winner of the <clears throat> Julia Child Award. She wrote the State of the World in 2011, of which time I think he spent a year or two in Africa, kind of traveling around and doing that. Yep. You are a TED Talker. And actually, Rob, we're kind of in trouble here because Danny has her own podcast, so she actually knows how to do this. Well, that's why she's giggling at us. And it's not, it's not our humor. She's like, these guys, oh, you sheesh. Exactly, exactly. So um, I've known Danny for quite a few years now. In, in those years, Danny, you've lived in D.C., Chicago, New Orleans, th- I don't know how many places in Africa, and, and now Maryland. Yeah, um, that is correct. I'm a nomad. Yes. So with that, um, welcome. We'd love to um, just hear from you. Um, you know, what is, what is food tank and maybe even more important, like, you know, what's your, you're one of the most um, kind of passionate, thoughtful people um, in my life. I know just on kind of food and in social issues and other things like that. So just give a quick introduction. Sure. Thanks so much to you both. Uh, so food tank, Uh, We were founded in 2013, and our mission is kind of a simple one, and it's to highlight stories of hope and success in the food system, both domestically and internationally, really to shine a spotlight on individuals and organizations who are doing good work to uh, improve food systems in in lots of different ways, whether that's through, uh, you know, preventing food loss or food waste or um, creating better access and affordability to healthy, nutritious foods. Um, it, it really just really ranges. And so, you know, uh, I, I started this work, uh, you know, a, a long time ago now, I, I grew up uh, in a very small town in uh, Missouri called Defiance. And 
I grew up around farm kids and just hated them. I, I wanted nothing more than to get out of there. And so now that, you know, I, I talk to farmers and sort of, you know, honor farmers as much as I can, my, my family still thinks it's a, it's kind of funny because I, I just wanted to get away from all that, uh, uh, you know, however many years ago now, I'm not going to say, but yeah, um, you know, uh, food is what I do. It's, uh, it's really just being able to tell those, those stories in a compelling way to move, whether it's policymakers or foundations or, or businesses. And just, just to clarify, it's not like the culinary components, it's a supply and availability kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's more talking about, you know, what are best practices? What's what, what's working? What's helping farmers? What's helping eaters? What's, you know, helping food and, and agricultural businesses really thrive um, and, and, you know, get the the access to resources they need in a, in a way that's sustainable for, for you know, health and, and the health of the planet. So I think, you know, Rob and I were talking about the show and, and what the show's about. And, you know, the show's about what's possible, right? The art of the possible. And, you know, we kind of overlay that with technology. So I think for you, it's almost a two-part question, right? Is I think in these times that we live in, you know, we just had Michael Slaby on, uh, on the last episode talking about kind of politics and the fragmenting of the American story and polarization. And I think probably food falls pretty squarely into that conversation at times. Um, and so, you know, I, I just as you think about food and the future of food and, and what is possible, um, what is some of that vision um, that you have? Well, I think the last 13 months, if you had asked me 13 months ago, what I thought about the future of food, I would have had a very different answer. Um, I think the, the, you know, the pandemic has really highlighted more about what's, what's possible than ever before. I, I think there was sort of a, um, a misconception about things like regionalized food systems or, or more local food systems um, that, you know, they could never really step up and, and, and uh, feed people in a, in a, in a way that, uh, you know, is sustainable in terms of, of making sure food got to people. And what we saw at the very beginning of the pandemic and, and often, you know, at different points throughout it is that big food, you know, big supply chains, long supply chains just didn't work. And, and people were depending on, on you know their their local farmers, their regional farmers more than ever before. Their you know smaller stores. Um, the the pandemic highlighted you know that um, the way we process animals, livestock in this country doesn't work um, very well for either the, those animals or people because of um, the the close uh, conditions and high speeds on on uh, in processing plants that really help precipitate the spread of COVID. And so many animals were euthanized often in very um, not animal welfare friendly ways uh, because there was just nowhere to take them. So I, I think, you know, the, the what's possible in food is that we um, have realized that there's, there's a lot to be said by going forward, by looking back, right? Uh, if you look at uh, this country and, and many countries, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, there were more sort of regional processing plants for animals. There were more regional mills and canneries and tinneries and, and, and places where, you know, uh, more jobs were created. There was more possibility. People saw agriculture as something they wanted to do, not something that felt forced to do, or they saw the food system as a way to, to, you know, have a job. So, you know, whether it was, uh, being, uh, uh, 
a cook at a school or a waitress. These were once good jobs that have now, you know, they're, they're thought of as lower class. And I think, um, the pandemic has shine really shown how, how important the, the, every sort of, uh, person along the food supply chain is. Um, are, and, I'm, and are we, I, are we seeing, sorry, just, just to cut yeah. like, are we seeing like the money flows change then? Like in that situation, I think, you know, the kind of the rule of like follow the money, right. Are we literally seeing more investments, you know, whether it's capital or kind of dollars, you know, consumer dollars being spent going back into these regional food systems to support them and build them? Yeah. I mean, uh, we're still seeing some of that. Yeah. The, the, the growth in CSAs or, you know, um, subscription boxes that people could get, you know, at a pickup site or sent to their door. Yes. Farmers really had to pivot and make uh, online marketing, you know, more possible for themselves, even if they didn't have access to, to, you know, the internet, they had to really um, think very quickly on their feet about how they were going to market. You, you saw more interest in, in farmers' markets because they're outside. People who are scared to go to a grocery store felt more comfortable shopping at a farmers' market. Whether you know, so some of them, you know, ha- has changed. People are spending less time, maybe, um, uh, at those big box stores and more time sort of seeking out local and regional sources of food. Whether that will continue post pandemic, that's what I'm sort of worried about. You know, if we'll we'll forget what we sort of learned and and what was important during this time. I think we have a very short memory. Yeah, I do too. And it scares me. So I think that's one of Food Tank's jobs is to really keep drumming this home, like, you know, the importance of food and farm workers. Um, there, there was a real sort of, sort of spotlight on essential workers, you know, this time last year, you know, shortly after this time. And, and I'm not sure if that still exists. And that worries me. We need to really keep shining a light on those essential workers. So, so Rob, so Rob, this is kind of a question for you too. So on the, on our first episode, we talked a lot about, um, kind of the technology acceleration that happened with COVID, right. And we, and we're like, oh, wow. Like actually consumers are going to have a pretty long, give brands a pretty long leash on like, you know, curbside pickup and, you know, BOPIS and other things like that, because that's what they want. Whereas now in this situation, I agree with you. I feel like, you know, we have a pretty short memory. What is the role in Danny, this question for you, like what is the role of technology in this? It seems like, you know, the ability to leverage technology to actually grow and stimulate the regional food economy is seems pretty great um, if done correctly. Yeah, but I don't, yeah. I don't think that's the, to me, the sustainable uh, leverage in tech is convenience because their short memories are overcome by convenience. I think that it's a, it's sort of the elephant in the tent where, or elephant in the room where, People say, you live, "Are you living in a tent now? Is that is this is this news?" <laughs> yes, I yes I am. I, oh. Don't worry, I'll get you back for that. The who likes walking up and down the aisles of a grocery store? I strongly prefer having someone put it in the back of my car. If we can get technology that aligns regional food production with convenience, it seems to me that's sustainable. But if we don't, Cause-based consumption is, I believe, impossible to sustain. What do you think, Danny? Um, You know, I'm sort of going to push back on uh, the. You know, people prefer maybe maybe a guy like you doesn't you know care of like what 
stalk of broccoli he gets or what his tomatoes look like, but a lot of people do. And I, I think we're going to go back to, you know, people wanting um, both that, you know, I, I think there's a way to combine convenience with giving people the experience of, of choosing their own food. And I don't, we're not quite there yet. You know, talking to your ship shopper over text is not the way to, to sort of create that experience, but maybe there's a sort of a virtual experience that you can go with your shopper throughout the grocery store and actually see what they're seeing. Um, so that might be the future of that. But I think the convenience part, you know, like my CSA delivers right to my door. Um, and the, this is a CSA that didn't do that before the pandemic. And so, you know, again, farmers and, and, and businesses are pivoting. Um, but I wouldn't be going to the CSA to pick out my produce anyway. But I do like going to the grocery store. And so many people do like going to the grocery store. Um, so there, there's got to be some way to, to combine, you know, convenience with, with you know, being being there somehow, being in the grocery store, having that experience. What's interesting on this, though, is like there's there's no difference for me as a consumer to be texting with my Instacart shopper and to be tech or to be texting with this person that happens to be going to the um, farmer's market for me. Right. Which actually we did over COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see if, you know, the technology actually can, you know, it, it almost is once you disassociate the person from the location, then it almost in a way, it potentially opens up opportunities for lo like more local food in, in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the other thing we have to think about is these, you know, whether we're talking about ships or Instacart or whoever, um, these are workers who are, this is a, a very, you know, gig based service. These are people who are not making a ton of money. Um, a lot of them are, you know, um, middle-aged folks who lost their jobs during the pandemic who are not part of unions and don't have a lot of access to, you know, protective equipment and, and things like that. So we have to really think about, you know, this human element that makes our lives so convenient, you know, it also has a big cost. And that's a theme that, you, that I think runs through food tech. I think that's a, a theme kind of with you in general, and is that you can't divorce food from people. Right. And talk, talk a little bit about that. And like, in, in a way, as you've seen the industrialization of food, um, and you know, I, I guess this goes all the way back to, um, grapes of wrath and, and Steinbeck and all the rest, but w why well, is there Sinclair? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> you know, this better than I do. So keep going. I mean, I, I think it's just that, you know, um, when, uh, <laughs> when you take that, the, the face out of agriculture, right. You forget that it's actually people who are, who are behind all this, whether it's, you know, um, farm workers in fields in California. We just had Driscoll's, the CEO of Driscoll's on our podcast yesterday, talking about, you know, some of the labor issues that they've had. We've, you know, if if you're looking at um, those processing workers that I talked about before or wait staff, these are all folks who, um, again, were, were forgotten until recently. They became very, you know, prominent in the news, uh, you know, last March and April. Um, and we we can't let folks forget that they're still, you know, they're still in trouble One for one. Restaurants are still, for the most part, you know, have laid off, you know, millions of workers because they, they no longer need them. Um, you, you know, processing plant workers who are in danger all the time. We, we really need to keep putting that human face uh, in, in front of, of, of eaters all the time. We, I don't, I don't like to talk about consumers. I like to talk about eaters because we all have to eat. 
Um, and, you know, I think um, there's a way to, to keep eaters engaged with the people who are part of the whole food supply chain. And, and Danny, in your mind, by keeping them front and center, the is it a way to ensure that the cost premium that we would we need to pay to make sure that we're taking care of that sort of worker chain is there that we're willing to do that well i i don't know if that has to fall on the consumer i think um you know a living wage is is been you know sort of something that we've teased around the edges, but now we're talking about it a lot more. So, you know, paying people $15 an hour, paying them, you know, more than that, it it takes the burden away from the consumer. Right. Um, So I I don't know if that's what keeps it front and center for the consumer, but, you know, I go to to a a designer market. um, I know that's paying a living wage. That's a choice. I'm going to, I know I'm going to pay a little more for stuff, but sure. like when I go to, and I'm, I'm now, oh, it's Phil's. Phil's is a coffee shop in San Francisco. I'm sure it's all over the place, but I only go to it in San Francisco. They pay a living wage to the baristas. A cup of coffee, a very nice cup of coffee with honey in it, $6. I make a choice. Yeah. No. And I think a lot of consumers do. This is, you know, uh, Food Tank has, has talked a lot about true cost accounting in the food system and, you know, what are the the positive and, and negative externalities of how we produce and consume food. And so you as a consumer are willing to pay a little bit more because you know that, uh, you know, that, that those uh, employees are paid better. And, uh, you know, uh, and I think that's a, a choice a lot of folks are willing to make. The problem is, is that, that a lot is that of folks can't about- make that choice. So... Okay. Well, so then it's, I mean, at some point this comes down to how do we, how do we make sure that the uh, restaurant worker can make a living wage? It's got to come from somewhere, right? So I think it's the the diners, the eaters at the restaurants. Well, I mean, or it's, it's the restaurant industry needs to change. And there've been a lot of conversations around that from, you know, folks like celebrity chefs, like Tom Colicchio, like we can't go back to the way restaurants were, you know, depending on tipping um, because what we've seen during the pandemic is people aren't tipping there, you know, when they get takeaway or they even dine out and, and try to do it safely, tips are much lower. The, the, so sure. the, a restructuring Europe, right. of restaurants needs to happen. So t- totally fair. But at, at some point, if you, if we put the, if we put the revenue into the entree as opposed to in the optional tip, it's better revenue security, but there is a higher price. And I'm, I'm yeah. supportive of it, but the, the money's got to come from that kind of restructuring. And, and maybe, I don't know, but maybe technology has a role in that. Like, how do we make that happen technically? Well, and, and Danny, doesn't, isn't there also a true cost of accounting thing you mentioned earlier? Like, there's a lot of, externalities of the food system, right? There's E. coli outbreaks and, you know, other issues with kind of industrialized food um, that, you know, there's a heavy cost to kind of society because of it. And, and I think what you're in, it kind of takes us into the conversation around, you know, you know, I mean, at one point in my life when I was living in DC and you and I were hanging out, like I would never eat anything where I, I didn't know where it came from. Right. right now came from a great place of privilege, right? Cause I could go to the DuPont farmer's market and I could buy my 
you know, hamburger and my meat, my steaks from you. And I, you know, and the guy that you were working with and I could buy my vegetables and all of that. Um, I could go to the reef, like uh, up in Adams Morgan, right. And have, you know, cause they kind of listen. It burned down, Dan. It burned down. Oh, Dan, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not. I'm oh, not. that's the worst. Oh, that's horrible. Um, that was a, yeah. a wonderful place. A lot of great memories yeah. here, but anyway, and so, but then, you know, then, so it's, I think it's really easy to say industrialized food, bad, yeah. like, you know, organic food, good or whatever, but it's hell of a lot more simple. nuanced than that. Yeah. Right. So like, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, you know, I think people have felt guilt, you know, for, you know, you and I do, do come from this place of privilege. And I think that's worth acknowledging on, you know, in every way that we can on every podcast and every article that's written about food, because white folks come from a huge place of, of privilege when we're, we're talking about these issues. And so I, I think, you know, the idea is not to to villainize, you know, and in the industrial food system, but it definitely needs to change because those those negative externalities, whether it's E. coli or massive pollution, or you know the 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 spread of of a pandemic like COVID nineteen, you know it, it's unsustainable in 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 a, in a million different ways. So it it needs to be restructured. It doesn't mean that big food goes away, but it it does need a restructuring or a resetting, and that's kind of what you know the work I do, I do suggest that we need a resetting of how we think about how we produce and consume food and. And, you know, those, those negative and, and positive externalities, how can we make sure that they're, you know, less of the negative ones and more of the positive ones and, and, and ensuring that, you know, we have better health for farm workers and farm animals and us as eaters um, and, and, and really getting to a place where that's part of policy, where that's part of decision-making every time folks go to the store. And I think, you know, technology is a, is a, can be a, a huge point of leverage for that kind of decision-making. Um, Food Tank, uh, we have this uh, working group called the Refresh Working Group. And it, we, you know, we work on it with Google and it brings different people in, in food and agriculture together to talk about the impact of technology on our food and agriculture systems. And everyone from farmers and academics to you know, technologists and of course, Google folks and, and others who are really trying to 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 see what works and and to see what will stick and what will will really help farmers and eaters make better decisions. But you know the the jury's still out on, on where technology can be helpful, and I think there are a lot of unintended consequences. Well, so where so now to go move into the what is possible? Like where are what are great stories or what are good um, analogs that? Um, we can look to to say, great, you know, this is an interesting you know story where they're doing food right, where they're leveraging technology in a novel way by which is really helping kind of the food system and and, and everything. Yeah, one is the work that's been done by Wholesome Wave over the last decade to get you know SNAP benefits online so that people um, can use their SNAP benefits just like you and I would use our credit cards. That has grown uh, tremendously during COVID, um, but Wholesome Wave was really at the forefront of that. And it seems, you know, sort of, uh, you know, of course, why shouldn't pe people be able to use their SNAP benefits online? Um, for your listeners, SNAP is, you know, traditionally known as food stamps. Um, so Wholesome Wave, I, I think that's a, a real success story. And then, you know, if we're, if we're looking, you know, not just at COVID, but how technology can be used by farmers in, in Colombia, um, the, uh, the Alliance of Bioversity and SEAT, uh, which is an international tropical research center, they've been working on what they call this big data platform to see how big data and, 
and um, uh, AI can be used to really help farmers of, of all sizes, but especially small scale farmers in the global South. You know, how can we get them better? How can that, that platform get them better um, information about weather and pests and disease and so that they can make different decisions? Um, you know, on, on how to use inputs or whether they should use, you know, artificial inputs or if they can, you know, um, that season depend mostly on sustainable agriculture practices. So there are lots of like interesting stories out there that I, that I don't think get enough attention. Um, but the scaling out of them and the replicating, I think, is what needs to happen um, so that they can be used more broadly. I mean, I think that's the key, though, is that the leverage on technology, just in terms of the cost of units sold, is so low. Making making better use of a seed is difficult because there's still seed. But saying, hey, don't farm this tract of land, farm this one because an algorithm says so, the marginal cost of that is, is zero. I think that's huge leverage. You, you buy Yeah, and we need – yeah, and I think we definitely need more of those leverage points. It's just, you know, th- this is this is a whole system that needs to be communicated down to the farmer, right? So extension workers need to be part of that process. And it's not just, you know, folks who are working at these big research centers who should be making the decisions. The decisions about how technology is used, from my perspective, need to be very participatory from, from the field to the lab, you know, to the satellite in space, right? And, and not enough of that participatory stuff is happening. What I have seen is a lot of, you know, people who look like me telling people in the global South what to do. And the, the sort of opposite needs to happen. You know, it's people in the, and, you know, the farmers in the fields need to be telling researchers and technology folks what they need and what will be most helpful to them. But if there, are they saying like, help me optimize my plant pat- planting patterns? Yeah, I mean, a lot of farmers want to know, like, how can I do this better? And, you know, they don't, and they often know things that researchers don't know, like, hey, if I do it this way, you know, if I, if I, if I grow, you know, cowpeas this way, this is, this is, you know, this works out better for me every year. You know, if you can get somebody to help them, um, you know, optimize that, that's, that's the kind of information they need, or they need more information on weather, you know, or they yeah. need more information on markets and that kind of stuff. When I was in, uh, so back in the day in like 2010, when I was citizen effect, we were in India and we were out in a place called Surendranagar, which is, you know, all desert in, uh, in kind of Northwest India. And, you know, they, everyone, all the, all the, and it was the salt pans. So literally desert, they basically would pull water up out of, from underneath the ground and then it would flood the land and then it would evaporate and then they would harvest the salt out of it. And I just noticed they were all on their cell phones. Like they're all like checking their cell phones all the time. And these were back in the day of flip phones really before kind of like, you know, we're all addicted to our smartphones. And I finally asked them, I'm like, what what are you looking at? They're like, Oh, we're just checking the market. We're checking prices. Right. Right. And so they'd already like, they had actually, you know, already had that and behaved that way. And I just to reiterate, Danny, I think, when you actually sit down and start talking to the people um, in these communities that are growing food, like they are the experts, like they, the local people know the land, they know the weather patterns, they know what grows, what doesn't grow. Um, and so, so oftentimes what happens is someone comes in and says, Hey, use this, you know, use this pesticide or use this fertilizer or whatever. Right. Like it's a, it's a one size fits all kind of a classic, um, you know, silver bullet. 
um, that will work great for, you know, a season or two and then, um, cause a lot of problems. So well, it's, it's been the paradigm of our agriculture system. You know, we, we tell people what they want. We don't ask them what we need, what they need from, you know, their land. And I think that's, that's, what's got to change and it has to change quickly. I think what we're missing in this conversation is kind of the urgency of these issues. It's not just the pandemic. We have a huge climate crisis that has, you know, unfortunately been, uh, you know, not in in front and center as, as much as it could have been over the last year because of the pandemic and helping farmers adjust and mitigate. And in some cases, you know, help reverse climate change that that urgency is really there. In, in, so I'm the eternal optimist here. So I think the, you know, what's exciting about this conversation, right, is, you know, the, you know, we have the, we have the farmers that are kind of, they, they know, they know the, their local situation. They know what they, what they want to do, but what is their need? Their need is information right now. Here we are on a podcast with, you know, technologists, hopefully a lot of kind of technology people kind of listening. It's like, okay, great. How can we actually, marshal that information and distribute that information in a way that actually is actionable, you know, on the ground. Right. I think that's where, yeah. you know, a lot of the opportunity is. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's getting information to people who need it the most. And it's, you know, the information is, is, you know, as they say, knowledge, and it's, it's the most valuable resource for, for these folks. So where, so where does a, you know, if, if you're a, you know, technologist in, in the United States, if you're someone listening to this podcast and you want to kind of get involved in food issues and, you know, you know nothing about food, you know nothing about the soil or agriculture, but you have this amazing skill as a developer, um, where do you, how do you, where do you go? How can you help? I mean, I, I think there are lots of ways to do that. Like I said, that we've put together this refresh working group because these are a lot of these folks didn't, you know, didn't start out uh, developing agricultural technologies. They started out doing what you just said. They have, you know, this great expertise and, and, you know, doing something else in, in, in the technology sector. But if, if they want to be helpful, I think looking up the refresh working group, it's a, you can go to foodtank.com and plug that in and, and, you know, see what we have already put together. There's a policy platform that we just released um, uh, for the new Congress in terms of, you know, how to sort of look at things like, you know, expanding rural broadband or, you know, what are, uh, how can technology help farm workers, those kinds of things. So, um, I think that's one way to get plugged in. I think generally speaking, I think we have to ideally make that, uh, sort of tic-tac sized because those things are difficult for an individual developer who is motivated to chew on. Like if I want to spend Saturday and Sunday hacking, I can't hack on rural broadband. I can hack on an open source project that one of those think tanks um, that was helping Southern farmers do machine learning and predictive AI. Like I can hack on that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And CIOT and the big data platform that I mentioned, that's, you know, another sort of thing. But I, you know, I, I also think that we can't hack our way out of these problems. Food problems can't just be solved you know, uh, with technology. And I, I think, you know, it, it's just one tool in a, in a big toolbox. Um, so we really need to, to, to look at all of the resources that, that are out there and not just depend on one. There is no silver, silver bullet, as Dan said before. And I, that's been the, you know, the kind of thinking for so long, it's, you know, it was going to be, uh, you know, GMOs or it was going to be CRISPR or whatever that was going to save the food system. And that just hasn't been the case. And, 
And, and going back to what we were talking about before, you know, when a, when a big global shock happened, it wasn't just technology that, you know, helped uh, uh, food systems uh, survive. It, it was a combination of, of farmers sharing data, eaters, you know, seeking out uh, other resources. Technology certainly played a part, but I think um, it, it was, it's, it's that sort of creating this ecosystem of things that work together. Um, and not just having this either or food system where it's either local and organic or sustainable or it's big, big food. So you Rob, have to have a combo. And Rob, just to be clarified for you, buddy, like CRISPR is not that drawer in your refrigerator <laughs> vegetables. It's actually this DNA kind of gene editing technology That's that they good have. Because I'm inviting the next guest to talk about CRISPR and then you can explain it to them. <laughs> That'd be, are you serious? That'd be awesome. No, I, but now I'm going to be. Oh, good. Yeah, the Walter Isaacson's new book is on um, kind of the the woman kind of behind CRISPR, and that's comes out I think next month. So looking forward to reading that one. Um, Rob, any other additional questions for Miss Nierberg? No, I think that um, I mean we could go on for a long time debating, you know how how technology can fit. I am a as you know we've had this conversation before, Dan. Uh, one of our respected leaders has a, uh, a phrase called software person and a software person looks at the world's ills and sees them through the lens of software. And I think that even if they are, there are um, industrial issues, they are facilitated, simplified and interconnected by technology and technology powered by software. And so, yeah, I can't make it, I can't write software to make corn grow faster, but I can write software that makes uh, the unit price of corn easier, more easily available to the farmer. I can Mm. write software that um, predicts yield better. Um, And it is the, I think it's the orchestra of all those little things that will, that is technology's role in possibly this kind of a problem. And I, th- I think you actually finally said something important on this podcast. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but no, the whole idea there of like, you know, there's software people, right? There are people that have these skills that, you know, and then the, qu- and so Danny, the question is, yeah, they're not going to be able to, you know, solve all the other sides of this multifaceted problem, you know, but what is the role of these software yeah. people and how do we actually create systems and programs by which allows them to, in Rob's word, I guess, eat Tic Tacs, because I guess developers like Tic Tacs, I don't know, um, by which to bite off something small, but contribute something to something much larger um, is an interesting question. Yeah, it's, and it's a huge question, an important one, and and one that I hope we can figure out. Again, the the, the urgency is there, um, and and we need to make a lot of these, these these things happen quickly. And that's the role of technology in that is huge. So, um, yeah, I, I think you know it's it's all about breaking down silos. Uh, for so long, our food system has been siloed, you know, and and both literal and, and sort of figurative ways. And we need to break down those silos to get more folks talking to each other. And again, you know, going back to the point I made, I made about it being more participatory, farmers need to be at the center of it, no matter, you know, who, who's involved. Yeah. And I think the whole idea, like we just need to know what we're eating. I mean, that whole idea of just transparency, which runs throughout kind of our society and our economy now, like just knowing what you put into your body is just becoming more and more important because um, because of the health crisis and you know 
and all of that. So, um, well, cool. Danny, any questions for us? Any pleas, any requests? There's a, you know, anything else we can do? No, I mean, I, I love the, this, uh, conversation that you all are having. And I think it's important to, to keep bringing technology into these conversations because, um, it, it can be this great sort of equalizer and, and really, uh, you know, bring people together in different ways that we've never seen before. And just being able to do this now during a pandemic is, is still amazing to me. So I, I, I you know, I think that that's sort of the, the, you know, uh, end point here that we, you can use technology to share information in really creative ways and, um, and help folks. Fantastic. Rob, anything else from you? No, I'm just eager to get off this podcast from you. Thank, thank God. Um, okay. Um, hey, Danny, Danny has been awesome. Give Iggy a big, big hug for me. <laughs> I will. Nice to and, talk to you both. And everybody, uh, foodtank.org, uh, check it out. It's an amazing resource. It's actually.com, Dan.com. Oh my God. So sorry. Foodtank.com. <laughs> well, what, where, where will it go if they go to foodtank.org? It'll redirect, but okay, I want well, them to good. go to foodtank.org. <laughs> That's called a brand, Dan. Do yeah, I know. That'll be our next in, our next fail. Episode. Fail. All right, Danny, it was wonderful. Um, Rob, thank you again. And we can't wait for our next episode, which I don't even think we know what it's going to be about yet. We don't. It's going to be a big surprise. All right. Thanks, well, Danny. Thank you, Two weeks. Thank thanks, you. Danny. Bye. Thanks.